Welcome back to Drafting the Past, a show about the craft of writing history. I'm your host, Kate Carpenter, and in each episode, I interview a history writer about how they get their words on the page. In this episode, it was my pleasure to interview science journalist Melissa Sivany about her new book, Brave the Wild River, the untold story of two women who mapped the botany of the Colorado River. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Melissa is the science reporter for Arizona Public Radio, as well as the author of two previous books, Mythical River, Chasing the Mirage of New Water in the American Southwest, and Under Desert Skies, How Tucson Mapped the Way to the Moon and Planets. Her work has appeared in many places, including O'Brien, The Atavist Magazine, Science Friday, and more. I spoke with Melissa about writing a book while working a full-time job as a reporter, how she created such detailed scenes in this book, and the helpful metaphor she used to think about the book's narrative structure. Enjoy my conversation with Melissa Sivany. You know, it's funny because I, I never actually wanted to be a writer, and yet here I am. I, you know, I've been writing since childhood, but I always wanted to be a scientist, specifically a geologist, and I was really on the track to be a research scientist all the way up until college. Um, And in college, I enrolled as an environmental science student at the University of Arizona. And as I was doing my degree, I just found that like part of my brain wanted something more creative. I just craved something else. So I started adding creative writing classes and eventually just ended up with a double major in environmental science and creative writing. And along the way, I had opportunities to, you know, take jobs that kind of blended those two loves ended up going for an MFA in environmental writing at Iowa State University, and then landed a job as a science journalist, which is not at all what I expected to be doing, but here I am. (laughs) That's awesome. I love it. Let's talk just about practical stuff. So when and where do you like to do your writing? I, well, if you had asked me that, you know, four or five years ago, I would have said like, oh, I go to coffee shops and, you know, I get together with friends. But then of course the pandemic happened and everybody changed what they were doing. So now I write at home and it actually works. I think I've discovered that like all of that other stuff was maybe more of a distraction than a help. Like it works. I stay at home. Um, You know, I've got a nice desk with a window and uh, yeah, I, you know, I write on Saturday mornings. That's my routine. I get up in the morning on Saturdays, sit down and I write for as long as I can, um, which varies from week to week. But I find that pattern really works for me. During the week, do, are you working as a freelance journalist? I am a full-time staff journalist um, at the local NPR station in Flagstaff, Arizona. So yeah, I do have kind of a nine to, nine to five job uh, Monday through Friday, and then I write on Saturdays, and I do my best to actually take some time off on Sundays and recover from all of that. <laughs> Great. When you're working on your own things, do you have a system for organization? How do you handle your workflow? I do have a system. I suspect it would make no sense to anyone else, um, so I can't, I can't recommend the system. I don't use any of those fancy like softwares that people have. Um, I use footnotes to keep track of my sources. And then I have folders upon folders upon folders of sources. I just looked it up before we started talking. And my um, my research folder for this book has more than 300 folders inside of it and more than 10,000 files. So that's a lot. But I have kind of a system to, to organize it. You know, each folder has like a Word document inside of it where I take notes as I'm doing the research. And that's really handy because then when I need to find something, I just use the search function in the Word doc and pop up where it is on my computer. So it's a system that works for me. I'm not sure it would work for anyone else. (laughs) 
just to um, clarify, when you say 300 folders, we're talking digital folders, right? Not... Yes, digital folders. <laughs> okay. Digital folders. Although I do actually, I am kind of fond of printing things out. So I do have a couple of three ring binders that are like hard copies of things. Documents that I use a lot, you know, like for this book, the plant list that Elzada Clover and Lois Jetter published. I printed that out and I took a bunch of notes on it. So I have some three ring binders as well on top of all those digital folders. Where in your research process do you feel ready to start writing? I actually do that right away. Um, as I'm working, I write. So those Word documents that I mentioned where I'm taking notes, sometimes something will spark my imagination and I'll just, I'll start the writing right away. I highlight it or I put it in italics or something so I can tell it's my words rather than notes that I'm taking. And I just put them in the document as I go along. And then later I'll scrape all of those little bits and pieces out and, and put them in my actual draft that I'm working on. I remember doing that with a shopping list in particular. I was doing research and I ran across a shopping list for the food they bought when they went on this 1938 expedition. And it was so interesting. It, was, it sounded so terrible. It was all canned. You know, everything was canned. And so I wrote a little paragraph about the food as I went along. Do you, do you outline as you work? I'm particularly, I, let me expand on this question a little bit, because in this book, especially, I'm really struck that there is sort of an overarching narrative arc that is the story of this trip. But then throughout it, we, we learn more sort of backstory. We learn context about science, America at this time, you know, all these sorts of things. Do you plot out how that will all work together at first? For this particular book, I didn't really outline it, but I did map it. Um, so I, I went to like Staples and I printed out an oversized map of the Green and the Colorado Rivers where this expedition was. And I, I went through and I mapped, you know, where particular events happened in 1938 that I wanted to write about, but then also where there were opportunities to write about something else. You know, I marked where there were going to be dams, you know, that came up in the future or where particular plants could be found. And so I had this like map outline that I started with. And I will say, like, I'm glad I did that, but most of it kind of, like, you know, happened more organically than that. I didn't follow it very strictly, but it kind of gave me a picture in my head. It gave me kind of a model to follow. Like, I knew that I was going to write about certain events when they came up in the geography rather than when they came up in a particular time, if that makes sense. Yeah, I like that a lot, actually. <laughs> so then, then what does your revision process look like? Uh, I revise as I go, which I've always heard is like a terrible way to do it. Like everybody, everybody says like, write your horrible first draft, you know, and then revise afterwards. But that doesn't work for me for some reason. Um, I usually start the day at the top of the chapter I was working on and I, I start revising. And sometimes all I do is revise and I get nothing fresh done on the page. But for whatever the reason that works for me, I like kind of resetting um, each time and starting at the top and kind of revising as I go along. Oh, that's great. There's no there's no right way to do these things. Right. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> Brave the Wild River is interesting because for many reasons, of course, but it's interesting because the story of these two women who are featured in it, you first wrote about in a in a long form piece for the Atavist. Mm -hmm. It was called The Wild Ones. Did you know at that point that this could be a book? I did not. I when I when I ran across the story, you know, I ran across Elzada Clover and Lois Jodder's names. Um, and I, I found out that Lois's archive was here in Flagstaff where I live. She donated a bunch of material to special collections before she died. And I was really interested in the story and I wanted to know more about it. And as I was fishing around, there just really wasn't very much written about these two women. And so I kind of had this realization that I was going to have to write it myself. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I'll write like a 2000 word article. And 
move on, <laughs> you know, with my life. Uh, and then I, before I knew it, I had 10,000 words on the page and I was like, oh no, nobody's going to take this enormously long <laughs> article. So I'm really grateful to the Atavis magazine for picking up that story and working with me on it. But I could tell I had like almost the sinking sensation as we were working on the final edits for that article. I'm still not done. I still have so much more that I want to say about this story. So it was a long time coming, but at, at, at that moment I was like, okay, I'm going to have to start working on a book. What was the process like for, for turning something that had been a 10,000 word narrative into a book length piece? You know, I thought, I thought that I was going to kind of use the, the article as an outline almost. That was my initial idea was that I would even maybe copy and paste it into a Word doc and kind of use that as an outline. And that didn't happen at all. That went all the way out, out the window. I was surprised at how much the book felt like something new. Like I really kind of started over with the book. I think it's just a different pace of story. And there were so many things I wanted to like slow down and tell in a much longer kind of slower way that I ended up kind of just leaving the article behind and, and starting all over. But it was nice having the article because I didn't know where I was going. You know, I had a lot of the research done that helped enormously when I was writing the book proposal, for example. You know, I, I kind of had this outline in my head, even though I wasn't using it on the page. This is so this is actually your third book, but it's your first with the trade press. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the differences in sort of the pitching and publishing process. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. My first two books were with university presses. Um, and I'm really, you know, I'm so grateful that university presses exist because they publish things that, you know, otherwise wouldn't really get published. They're not so concerned with whether it sells um, as much as they're concerned as like, is this scholarship that needs to be out in the world? So, for example, my first book, Under Desert Skies, was a very local history about planetary science in Tucson, Arizona, where I grew up. And there really, there wasn't any other press except the University of Arizona Press that was going to be interested in that story. So it was pretty straightforward from that sense. You know, I sent them a fairly brief proposal. Um, at that point, I already had the book finished and, and asked them if they would be interested. And I'm so glad they, they took that so it's quite different with a, a trade press. I spent a lot of time working on the proposal, which is much longer and more complex. Um, I was working with an agent, Lori, who's just wonderful. And, you know, it got picked up by Norton. And I kind of feel like one of the major differences is, well, there are a lot of differences, but I do have like a whole team with my agent and my editor and the publicists at Norton who are really helping me bring this book into the world. And so that's a good feeling. I, I really enjoy that. Did you work with your agent? for a long time in terms of sort of finessing and putting together the proposal? It felt like a long time to me. <laughs> I don't know if it was like objectively a long time, but it certainly felt like it took a long time to put the proposal together. Yes. I'm interested. So in this book, but also in your first book, there's, they're really histories, but your background is, is from that of a science journalist a nature writer and a, and a scientist. How do you think about the relationship between your work and academic historians? Yeah, this is such a great question because it is it is quite different. I think an academic historian would approach this story very differently than I did. I mean, one of the most obvious differences is that I put a lot of science into the story um, because that's kind of where my heart lies is, is doing science writing. And um, I think that was a, a good choice because um, Elzada Clover and Lois Jodder, when they were alive, they really wanted this expedition to be seen as a scientific expedition. And that kind of didn't happen. The newspapers at the time left out the science entirely or sometimes would say things like, well, the science they did wasn't very important. And I, I know that was a disappointment to both of them for their entire lives. And so I wanted to approach the story as like 
this was a scientific expedition and the work they did is something that still matters today. So I knew I wanted to tell not only the kind of adventure story of their expedition down the river, but kind of weave in this larger story of how has the Colorado River changed since they saw it and how can we kind of look at it through their eyes and then see how it's changed today. So I think that's an approach that I could take as a science journalist that maybe an academic historian wouldn't necessarily take. Did you rely much on the work of historians in terms of your research for this book? Yes, yes, absolutely. And historians are so wonderful. They exist because they do that really like nitty gritty work that I don't necessarily want to do of like pinpointing the like the tiniest little facts. And there's a really wonderful group of historians who specialize in the Colorado River. And I kind of fell into the habit of just emailing them <laughs> like when I had questions and they were very kind and answered my emails or even met with me in person. And I could email them the most obscure question you could ever think of. And they would often have really wonderful answers for me. So I really appreciate that that historians exist and that they're available in that way. To talk more about Melissa's approach to writing and how it works on the page, I asked her to read a short excerpt from the prologue to the book. Here's Melissa Sivany reading from Brave the Wild River. Cataract Canyon, where Jotter was stranded, was only the beginning. Their first test, and they had failed. The Grand Canyon still lay ahead. By 1938, only a dozen expeditions, just over 50 men all told, had successfully traversed the Grand Canyon by boat since John Wesley Powell's journey nearly 70 years before. Only one woman on record had attempted the trip, Bessie Hyde, who vanished with her husband, Glenn, on their honeymoon in 1928. Their boat was left empty. Their bodies were never found. People said women couldn't run the Colorado River. Well, Clover and Jodder weren't just women. They were botanists, and they were going to try. Jodder had time to remember those stories and to wonder what had happened to her companions somewhere upriver, no doubt trying to reach her. But the night stretched on and they didn't come. An unseen fish splashed out on the water. The fire burned to embers. Two rowboats, their fresh white paint showing new scores and scrapes, listed on their sides on the riverbank. Jodder checked the ropes that anchored them and nervously checked again. She dragged out the bedding and spread it to dry in the firelight. She unpacked the drenched bags of food, matches, and cigarettes. She stoked the fire with another stick of driftwood, gleaming and polished from its tumble-down river. She put her back to a stone and her face to the flames. She toasted some bread and ate it. The river was rising, and soon she had to move the fire back from the encroaching edge. Stars bloomed in the sky overhead, one great river of stars, a perfect echo of the real river below. With nothing but stars and the river for company, she had time to wonder if coming here had been a mistake. Talk to me about how a passage like this comes together. It's so beautiful. There's so many sensory details. What sources did you draw on for this? Yeah, I'm glad you picked this one because this was the scene that made me want to write this book. Um, I was I had just started dipping my toe into the archives at Northern Arizona University, and I found a letter that, that Lois Jodder had written to her mother just a few weeks after this incident. So, you know, they've had a very bad day. It's their first day on the Colorado River. Everything has gone terribly wrong, and she's stranded all alone all night, which I think for most of us would be a pretty terrifying experience. I think I would be fairly terrified by that. But she, I found this letter she wrote to her mother where she tells her, like, you know, the newspapers are saying that 
I was alone and I was in danger. Don't believe any of that. I had a lovely time. <laughs> and I really, I really just love that, you know, and that, that made me want to write her story, like the kind of person who would get, get herself into this situation, but be like, it was fine. I, it was quite lovely. So I had three sources to kind of reconstruct this scene. And all of them are from Lois because it's, she's the only one there at this moment. So she wrote about it in her diary, kind of right there at the river as it was happening. And she wrote about it in that letter to her mother a few weeks later. And then she talked about it in an oral history that she gave decades and decades after the fact. And so when I was kind of reconstructing scenes, I, I tended to give more weight to the diaries because that was like right in the moment, you know, really, really fresh. But in this case, I, you know, I was able to integrate all three of those sources together to really create this like rich, rich scene. So all of the, the details in there came from those sources. Like she talked about how she was eating bread that she toasted and, you know, step by step what she was doing with her time in this moment when she's alone and how the river rose and she had to move the fire back and even the sounds that she was hearing kind of, you know, wrestling in the brush. So I'm lucky that I had those sources to tap into that was just, you know, such rich material. And I wanted to, you know, I wanted to spend time on this scene. I really wanted to slow down and have the reader feel kind of what was happening in this moment. And it's, you know, she's not afraid. It's kind of this lovely, lovely moment of solitude. I think if you're a writer, you're probably an introvert and you know, you know the loveliness of being alone in a beautiful place. So I really wanted the readers to kind of to feel that in, in the rhythm of how I put the scene together. That's interesting that you say that because I'm struck by it. It's clear throughout the book that she writes great letters. She writes great diary entries, which is a gift to the writer and the historian. Yes. Absolutely. But I was struck that unlike maybe a lot of, of academic historians in this opening, especially, you don't rely on quotes from her here, right? Like you've you've put this all in your words to reconstruct the scene. Talk to me about that decision and how how you do that. Yeah, I um I really wanted the reader to feel very immersed in the moment. I wanted them to feel like they were on this river trip in, in 1938. And that's probably another difference in my approach compared to what an academic historian would do, is that I actually wanted my sources to be sort of invisible. You know, I wanted them to kind of fade to the background. I didn't want to stop and say, oh, I got this from the diary, or I got this from a letter. And I didn't want to stop and say, like, oh, here's three different accounts that people had, and I'm going to put them side by side. That's all something a historian might do, and it, it certainly is, you know, in, important in, in certain contexts. But for this story, I really just wanted my readers to feel like they were there. And that kind of meant letting the sources fade to the background and being as immersive as possible in what I was describing. We talked about this a little bit and how you outlined it, but but one thing that this book does so well is that there's this this great interaction between scenes where you kind of summarize context or background information, or even just I don't want to say boring, but you know things that we don't need to get into every detail of in the story. And then there are scenes like this where you really slow down and let the reader be there with you. How do you decide which is which and sort that out as you as you go? Yeah, that's interesting that you, you characterize it that way, because I don't think I really thought about that consciously as I was writing. What I did think about consciously was the movement of the story. You know, so most of it takes place on the river and it it moves the way a river trip moves. One of the things I did for research that I never imagined I would ever do was I rafted the Grand Canyon to research this book. <laughs> and it, it kind of moves that way where there's things that are like crystal clear in your memory. There are moments where everything kind of slows down. 
And then there are other things that blur together and you just have like this sense of impressions, these kind of beautiful impressions of the canyon and the river that all kind of like blurred together. And I think without really knowing that, because I hadn't rafted, you know, I rafted the, the river pretty late in the in the writing process. I was kind of echoing that in my writing. I wanted it to feel like a river trip. So there's times like this scene that I read where everything kind of slows down and I really get into the detail. Um, and part of that has to do with what sources I have available and how detailed the sources are. And then there's other scenes where I wanted I wanted to just be like days blurring by to get that sense that they had that these days were just kind of becoming almost tedious. They write about how even rafting the river can become almost tedious where it's like we get up early, we, we press the plants, we get the boats ready, we raft the rapids, you know, make dinner late at night. The women were the one doing all the cooking, press more plants, go to bed. And it was just like exhausting. And I wanted that sense of everything kind of blurring together in other scenes. So it kind of goes back and forth. And and structurally, I, I really um, I borrowed this structure for the book from a writer who's been a mentor to me for a long time, Alison Hawthorne Deming, she's a wonderful poet and nonfiction writer. And I took a workshop with her years and years ago where she talked about how one way to structure a story is to imagine you're ice skating down a river and you have a destination at the end. It's like a hot cocoa stand that you want to get to. But along the way, you skate from side to side and you look at different things. You look at an interesting tree or you go talk to a friend even though all the time you're trying to get to the end of the river. And I kind of had that just tucked in the back of my mind. And when I found this story, I was like, this is the structure, right? They're literally on a river. They've got a goal. They've got to get to the end. They want to stay alive and get their plants. But along the way, I wanted to stop and, and have these moments of history or moments where I talk about botany or I talk about ecology that kind of just get wrapped into the story. And so there's the scene, there's the summary, like you described, but there's also these like little things from the past. I, I thought of them in my head as eddies, because when you're rafting a river, an eddy will take you upstream, kind of slow you down and take you upstream. So that's how I was thinking of the structure of my of the book in my head, you know, as this literally a, a river that they're 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 going down. I don't, hopefully I was a little rambly. Hopefully that all made sense. No, I love that. I, I've never heard that metaphor before for for a narrative approach, but I love it. Often when I talk to people who write sort of more environmental histories, they talk a little bit about the importance of being able to see the place or go to the place. What did that mean to you to be able to be on the river? Yeah, I mean, that was so critical. And of course, I, I got the contract for this book like right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I had all of these big plans. I had these archives I needed to go to, but I also wanted to see everything that they saw and everything shut down and <laughs> I was trapped and I couldn't I couldn't go anywhere. You know, so it was pretty late in the project that I was able to kind of actually go and do some of these things I wanted to, to do. So I went and saw, you know, the place on the Green River in Utah where they launched the boats and and I rafted the Grand Canyon. And that really, I mean, that was just so critical. I have to say, I'm not that adventurous of a person. Like, you know, I'm outdoorsy. Like, I like hiking and camping and whatnot, but I never imagined doing a whitewater rafting trip. And I had never done anything like that before. So I volunteered with a botany crew that was weeding an invasive species and spent two weeks on the river. And I kept a diary um, the entire time where I, you know, mostly landscape description, descriptions of plants, you know. And when I got back, I read the whole diary and I typed up bits of it and then I printed it out and I cut it up with scissors and I literally taped it into my draft, you know, like <laughs> like there's moments, you know, in, in the story where like in the diary they said, well, we reached Tanner Rapid and we looked up and we saw the Desert View Watchtower. 
And I had that information in the diary, but until I saw it for myself, you know, until I had that experience coming up on Tanner Rabbit and looking up and seeing the watchtower on the ridge, you know, I couldn't really describe it until I had that kind of experience, you know, the same experience that they had. So uh, that was really an incredible thing to be able to do. Was it difficult to balance working a full-time job and writing a book? Oh, gosh. (laughs) It was so difficult. And I don't know how people do it. Um, I know a lot of people do do it. So somehow we manage. But uh, yeah, that's hard. I mean, mostly it's just kind of like a general fog of exhaustion, you know? Um, (laughs) What can I say about that? Yeah, just general exhaustion. I really, the Saturday thing works for me in some ways because it gives me permission to not write the rest of the week, you know? people say you're supposed to write every day if you're a writer I think that's that's nonsense I hope we know by now that that's nonsense like you know it doesn't work for a lot of people who have full-time jobs or have families or whatever whatever the case may be so it was nice to like know that Saturday was coming up I would have my dedicated writing time and the rest of the week I could kind of like background it I could go back to my day job and work on my day job but it was always kind of in the background of my mind you know little problems that I was having would start working their their you know way out during the rest of the week so that pattern really worked for me, and I, I encourage people who are trying to balance a job with some other kind of writing life to to figure out whatever it is that works for them. Do you have any sort of writing group or writing community that you look to for feedback? I do, yes. Um, there's a couple of, of wonderful writers here in town that I get together with regularly, not to write, but just <laughs> to be together, you know, um, and talk about what we're working on. And then I also have an online writing group that I adore. Um, they're all all women. They're all science writers. They're all wonderful. And I don't know what I would do without them. They have been with me every step of the way as I'm working on this project. And that's that's really fantastic to have. I'd love to know, you've already told me a, a bit of great writing advice, but what's some of the best writing advice you've gotten? So when I was in graduate school, um, probably the best advice I got was from my advisor, Deb Marquardt who's a wonderful poet and nonfiction writer. And I'm not sure she really knew that she was giving me advice at the moment, but I was in her office working on my, having a meeting with her about my thesis project, which turned into my second book, Mythical River. And I was really in a bad place. Um, I had gotten to a point in grad school where I had just stopped writing entirely. I was miserable and depressed. And, you know, I was just really struggling. And I don't know, maybe she noticed that, or I don't know what prompted her to say this to me, but she said, Melissa, you need to give yourself some days where you're just a writer. Just stay in your pajamas and just write. And it was, you know, it's very simple. (laughs) But it was like a moment for me where I realized, like, wait a minute, I love this. You know, I've always loved writing since I was a kid. I used to really look forward to getting home from school so I could sit down in front of our clunky old computer and work on whatever story I was working on. And I had kind of forgotten that along the way. Writing had become kind of (laughs) more of a job, you know, and I was, I was struggling. And so I, I, you know, I took that advice from her. I start, and that's when I started writing on Saturdays. I started up writing again just on Saturdays. I'd stay in my PJs. I'd make some hot cocoa or some coffee, and just kind of like write on whatever, whatever was pulling me—poetry, fantasy, science fiction—didn't matter. And that's kind of how I rekindled my love of writing, which for a while had really gone away. So yeah, that was probably that. That was not only the best advice I ever got, but life-saving, life-changing advice. I'm struck that you've had a couple of mentors who are both poets and nonfiction writers. Do you think that impacts the way that you write? Oh, gosh, yes. I didn't say this, but my, you know, my undergraduate creative writing degree was actually in poetry. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And I didn't really start writing um, nonfiction until 
until graduate school. So all of my focus was on poetry from a really a young age. And, and really my, my writing mentor from childhood, uh, Richard Shelton, was a poet of the Sonoran Desert. He just passed away last year. But he was, you know, a life-changing influence on me. And I know it affects my nonfiction. Like, you know, even in the passage I just read, you know, the, the rhythm of it comes from poetry and poetic techniques. And sometimes that, like, <laughs> sometimes I run across, I, you know, there were moments like my copy editor was like, this word would be a little better here, don't you think? And I'd be like, but I want the alliteration, <laughs> you know? And alliteration is a poetic technique. And I'm sure my nonfiction editors were like, what is, what is she talking about? Why does she want the alliteration? But yeah, I definitely um, absorbed a lot from my poetry background that kind of just oozes its way through the nonfiction. <laughs> In addition to the mentors that you've mentioned, are there other people you read, people you look to as sources of inspiration? So many. How much time do we have? Um, <laughs> I could go on forever about writers that, that matter to me. For this book specifically, there were there were three books about the Grand Canyon that I kind of returned to as, as touchstones. One was Anne Zwinger's Down Canyon, um, which is a beautiful work of natural history. And I took that with me on my river trip in the Grand Canyon and reread it. Another was Ellen Malloy's Raven's Exile, which is the story of her river trips down the Green River. And she's so funny and her images are so sharp. And she's just such a, a wonderful champion of the desert. Um, I love all of her work, but especially that one. And then there was Kevin Fedarko's The Emerald Mile, which was just a great like inspiration for how to take a lot of technical and scientific and historical detail and, and move it in such a compelling way into an adventure story. It's a really cool story about the, the fastest speed run through the Grand Canyon. So those three, like in terms of like Grand Canyon stories, I kind of kept returning to again and again. But there's definitely other writers who just write about the West in general that I've always loved and been inspired by Carrie Tempest Williams, Pam Houston, a dear friend of mine here in town. One of the, one of the members of the writing group that I mentioned is Ash Davidson, who wrote Damnation Spring. Um, and it's a beautiful novel about a family in the Redwoods in the 1970s. And I learned so much from that book about writing place and writing character. I could keep going on and on forever because I love books, which is why I do this. <laughs> That's wonderful. What have I failed to ask you about writing this book? I, I guess I'll just add that, you know, it was such a gift to have diaries from both of these women. They, they kept diaries as they rafted the river in 1938. And they had the foresight to, to save those diaries and to archive them at two different universities, which I think took a lot of guts and, and courage in their time to think that what they did was important enough because everybody was telling them that it wasn't. Like, in their time, people were telling them that what they were doing wasn't important. And they both must have pushed back against that enough to feel that they should save those diaries and save those letters that they wrote. And it was such a gift because I could hear their voices. And that's what made this story possible was like really hearing their voices and their experiences and knowing what they thought and what they felt. I, you know, I couldn't have written the story without that. So I'm just so grateful to Elzada and Lois, who, have, you know, I'll never have a chance to meet for, for saving the story in that way and, and making sure that future writers and historians would have access to it. 
Well, I know this is a deeply unfair question for someone who has a book coming out, but do you have another project you're working on that you'd like to talk about? Oh, gosh, Kate, that is deeply unfair. <laughs> the answer can be no. Also. You know, I always have projects. Um, I'm, you know, I've become rather like over the years, I've become rather superstitious about telling people about projects like new projects. I feel like they're like these little embers that I'm holding. And if a cold wind comes along, it'll just get snuffed out, you know? So I never really want to talk about them, but I am, I will say that I, you know, when I started working on this book, something kind of clicked for me. Like I felt like this work of recovering the stories of people who had been forgotten or overlooked was something that I wanted to do. It felt right. So I'm interested in telling more of those kinds of stories. And right now I'm really quite interested in the women who worked as fire lookouts during World War II. Um, so there's that span of like four years where all the men went to war and the fire lookouts throughout the West had to be staffed and women went out to these really remote and lonely places all by themselves for months at a time and looked for, for wildfires. I don't know whether I'm going to have the same gift of like a, a amazing archive to tap into, but I'm looking around. And so if any of your listeners, you know, have an, a great aunt or a grandmother who did this work, I would love to hear from them. Excellent. I, I hope that they did because that would be so cool. I said that was my last question, but I'm curious to know, do you have a an approach you like to use for looking for these types of stories or do you just stumble upon them? Do I have an approach? Let me, <laughs> let me think. That, you know, that story I kind of stumbled upon. I guess I, I'd known these women existed, but one of the people I interviewed for this book was uh, Lois Jodder's son. And he had these wonderful stories. And one of the stories he told me was about a, a female fire lookout um, whose name I don't know. And he doesn't know. It's like a childhood story that his family had passed down um, from the time when his grandfather was a forester. So I think I get the stories by, by talking to people, you know, and every now and then something will just, will just spark where it sounds like there's more to that. I want to know what the rest is. Melissa Sevigny, thank you so much for talking to me for Drafting the Past. This has been wonderful. Thanks, Kate. I really appreciate the chance to, to chat with you today. Thanks again to Melissa Sevigny for joining me for this episode of Drafting the Past. And as always, thanks to you for listening. You can find links to Melissa's books and the other writers we talked about in this episode in the show notes at draftingthepast.com. I'll be back soon with another great interview. And until then, remember that friends don't let friends write boring history.